0: What's interesting about my kids, and I don't, I don't think it's unique to my kids, but they will fight about anything, everything, and nothing at all. They will invent reasons to fight. In fact, my oldest is the best at that. He's the firstborn, and so he likes rules, right? So he will create games. He will make up games. And I'm convinced that the only reason he makes the game up is to be able to get into an argument with his sister to be able to to fight with his sister about some rule that he arbitrarily made up in a game of imagination that nobody can tell him that this person is guilty or innocent of committing this infraction because it's in his head, but he just wants to fight. But it's not just my oldest two, it's, it's all of them. The twins, my two youngest, who are just over two, they will fight over which one gets to sit in what chair or ride which little scooter thing that we have, which one gets what color cup or what color bowl, or which one gets to get kisses from mom and dad before they go to bed first, and they will just fight over the most random things. And you expect that from kids, don't you? You expect that from brothers and sisters, from siblings. If you guys grew up with a a big family, you guys grew up with siblings, you fought with one another. I'm sure you did. And you expect that from kids, you expect that from from people who are younger, because really the the root of that arguing and fighting and bickering is a self-centeredness, isn't it? And when you're little, that's really all you know when you're little, the the only thing that you really know, the only thing that you're really concerned about, the only thing that you really think about is what makes you happy and what's good for you. You don't begin to think about, well, maybe what I need to do is love somebody else. I need to do what's good for somebody else. And so when you don't get your way as a two-year-old, your natural inclination is to fight and to argue and to, to bicker with one another. By the way, guys, as a sidebar, that confirms what the Bible teaches us about our natural state, doesn't it? That as two-year-olds, my twins know how to hurt one another. They know how to argue with one another. They know how to yell at one another. And guess what? Amanda and I never taught them how to do any of that. We never said, okay, now you guys are coming up on two years old, and there's this thing that you have to live up to called the terrible two, so we're going to have to teach you how to be selfish. No, we didn't have to teach them that. That came naturally. Why? Because that's the natural inclination of humanity is towards the self, is towards fallenness, is towards sinful depravity. But when we think about kids, we expect that behavior. But think about this group. Think about the church, big C even, the the universal church. And if there's a place where we expect things to be different, it should be in those places. This series is called The Cross Applied. It's looking at the book of James to see how we should be living out our faith in Jesus Christ. How we should be living out our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so much of this has been focused on how we live that out within community. In other words, in our relationships between one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we live our lives? How do we treat one another? James has talked a lot about our words. He's talked a lot about serving each other. He's talked a lot about being doers of the word and not just hearers only. And so as we think about this concept of unity and we think about this concept of community, it shouldn't be a place where there's infighting, where there's self-centeredness, where there's, like we talked about last time, selfish ambition and envy and covetousness that divide people. See, y'all, what we need to do is we need to let the gospel radically transform our lives. And as it radically transforms our lives, it's going to radically transform our relationship with God, and it's also going to radically transform our relationship to ourselves. How we relate to ourselves, how we relate to what our passions, our desires, our longings are, our agendas are, the gospel is going to impact that greatly. James addresses this in James chapter four. We're going to be there for our time together tonight in verses one through six. But let's begin in verse one and go down through verse three. It says this, James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive, though, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Think about the, the fights and quarrels, the arguments, the, the, the infighting, the division that you find yourself in so often. And as you think about those conflicts, as you think about those fights, as you think about those battles, I'm gonna venture a guess, based on my own personal experience as well in this, that it ultimately comes back to the same sinful heart that James was confronting and addressing in the, the lives of his hearers that he was originally writing to here. He says, what causes these quarrels? What causes these fights? What causes division? What does he say? He answers it. He says, is it not what? The passions that are at war within you. The passions. It's a different word than what we see elsewhere in scripture, that a, a word that's sometimes translated passions, otherwise other times it's translated as, as a lust. This isn't that word, this is a different word. The passions, it's the physical feelings that you experience that are associated with your bodily appetites. Those feelings that control your actions, that control your drive, that consume you, that make you say about something, man, I I have to have fill in the blank, whatever it may be. James says, what causes the division amongst you, what causes the, the fights and the quarrels, what causes the discord in the body of Christ is that your passions, these desires for things, are at war within you. Paul writes in Philippians chapter three of these passions and the person who is governed by these passions, he says this, His end, he says, is destruction, Philippians 3.19. His end is destruction. His God is his belly, and he glories in his shame with his mind set on earthly things. It's a strong description that that Paul is talking about, but this is the, the type of person that's causing the fights and the quarrels in the book of James as well. The person whose God is his belly. Now, does that mean that Paul's only talking about people that are gluttons? that have to eat and they're craving food and that's all, that's all they can think about and they're, they're just a slave to their, their physical, like, actual hunger. Well, yeah, maybe that's, that's one side of it. But he's using the, the idea of, of hunger to encapsulate all of our sinful cravings and longings that we have. All of these passions that are at war within us and, and Paul's saying that the, the mark of the unbeliever is that they are a slave to that, that that's their God, that all they care about is satisfying themselves. Whatever impulse, whatever desire, whatever thing they crave, whatever longing they have, whatever temptation arises, they're like, okay, let me do whatever I can do to satisfy that craving. How quickly can I give into that temptation? Peter says uh, of our relationship with the world and these passions, he says this, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Same word, passions of the flesh. To abstain from those things that wage war against your soul. To have nothing to do with them. To put it off because he says as well that they wage war against your soul. Y'all, the, the thing that you have to realize about yourself is that the, the passions that you have for things that are sinful are not something that is, is good for you. Your temptations are not good for you. And that's one of the greatest lies that the enemy plays on you is that you think that when you are tempted by something, that temptation that that lures you is the thought that, you know what, if I have that, that's going to be good for me. But what James wants you to see, what Paul wants you to see, what Peter wants you to see is that those passions are in fact waging war against your soul. They're not good for you. They're they're exactly the opposite of good. And James describes these passions and what they do to the people. In the book of James here, back in chapter four, he says this, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And there's question as to whether or not this was actual, literal, physical murder taking place in the, the communities that James was writing to. It's possible that there were people within the church that wanted something that somebody else had and they wanted it so much that all they could think about was, I have to have what that person has and so they literally killed the person to get what they wanted. Obviously, we know that that's a major problem, right? Hopefully, we would all agree with that. But then again, we have to go back to what Jesus says about murder in Matthew chapter five when he says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. He says, but I say to you, if anyone hates his brother in his heart, he's guilty of it, right? So Jesus takes that, that hatred that we can feel towards somebody and sometimes we see somebody else whose life is going well, who things are going great for them or they have something that we want and we begin in our heart to, to cultivate feelings of, of despite for them. We, we despise the person for the good that they've experienced. And in that sense, we're just as guilty as the person that physically murders that person in the eyes of God. Why? Because the the root of the the murder is the hatred that begins in the heart. So simply because we contain our hatred to the internal and we don't act on it doesn't make us any better than the person who does. The sin is the same and it begins in the same place. He goes on. He says, the other passion that you have, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel with each other. It's, It's clawing to get to the top as fast as you can. Who do I have to take out to get what I want? Who's in my way? Who can I eliminate so that I can put myself in a better position? These are passions that are waging war against their soul. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, James is saying to them, he's saying, look, you're not asking for the right things. You want satisfaction? You're chasing satisfaction in the wrong areas. The reason you're not satisfied is because you're not asking for the right things that will satisfy you. And the things that you are asking for, he says, you don't have those because you're asking for them for the wrong reasons. There are idols in your heart that you say, I have to have that and I won't be satisfied unless I have this. God, please give me this because I I need it. And God's saying, I'm not going to give that to you because you're asking it to spend it on your passions, your lusts, yourself. These are your idols. In other words, y'all, as James is beginning, chapter four, again, talking about the community and how the gospel should impact the communities. He's been talking about the tongue in chapter three. He's been talking about wisdom that we looked at last time. And now he's talking about fights and quarrels. And he's saying, look, this conflict comes from the love of self being far greater than the love for one another. And that's traceable back to the heart, right? What does the world say about your heart? Listen to your heart, right? There's entire songs built upon that nonsense in Pablum. It's garbage. Don't listen to your heart. Doubt your heart. Mistrust your heart above all else. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. The heart is what? Deceitful. Jeremiah, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is telling you, right now, tonight, you want to know what God thinks of your heart? He says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so when the world says, hey, trust your heart, lean into your heart, you know where that's going to get you? That's going to get you consumed with yourself. Consumed with what's good for you, and that's going to leave in your wake a lot of destroyed relationships and also a destroyed testimony along the way. And it's also going to leave you at odds with God. So as you think about this concept that the gospel needs to radically transform our lives, our relationships with one another, and our relationship to ourself, the first thing that you need to understand and realize is that the greatest enemy you have is you. And that's point number one tonight. Realize your greatest enemy is you. Your passions, your desires, yourself, this is what is your greatest enemy. You know yourself better than anyone does. And the heart, your heart, your flesh, knows your weaknesses better than anyone does. And it will prey upon those weaknesses time and time and time again. And it will convince you that you have to have something, that you need something, that you have to have this no matter the cost. And if somebody stands in your way, then they are your enemy. They are to be removed. They are an obstacle to be overcome. And it will lead to these quarrels, these fights, these disruptions in the unity of the body of Christ, which should be there because of the gospel. Any of y'all in the room boxing fans? No, no one in the back. So there's a, a, a famous picture, okay, and the, the picture, you guys heard of Muhammad Ali, at least tell me you've heard of Muhammad Ali, okay. So there's a famous picture that's actually going to be up here in just a second, of Muhammad Ali, and he's standing over a guy, anybody know the name of the guy that's on the map? Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston. Now, this was a fight that was watched by a, a, a ton of people, right? It was, it was a, a big deal. And Muhammad Ali comes out and just flattens Liston there. I mean, look at that guy. Like, that is a terrifying man that is standing over uh, Sonny Liston on, on the mat. Why is Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston? He's gloating. We could go there. But what's the other reason why he's standing there? What's he making sure that Sonny's not going to do? Get up. Y'all, you need to stand over yourself the way Muhammad Ali stands over Sonny Liston and make sure that yourself doesn't get up off the mat. You need to daily knock out your sinful desires, your passions, your lust, the things that say you're number one, you're the most important person. It's all about your satisfaction and your happiness. Those thoughts, knock them out cold and then stand over them and make sure for the rest of the day, those thoughts don't get back up off the mat. And you say, well, Great, but in boxing there's a ten count, not a three count, there's a ten count. But h- how long do I have to to, to to do that? For the rest of your life, guys. The ten count's not gonna be until you stand in the presence of Christ. Your flesh will always be there, always ready to get back up. And if you turn your back and you think, well, I'm good, I don't I don't need to worry about my flesh for a while. I don't need to worry about my sinful desires, my selfishness then your flesh is gonna be back up off the mat before you know it and cold cocking you in the back of the head and you're gonna be on the mat. And so as you think about yourself, your heart, your desires, you need to understand that your greatest enemy, the greatest enemy to your walk with Christ is yourself. The flip side is that we need to consider Christ's example, don't we? Christ's example that he gave in Philippians chapter two that Paul writes about when he says, let no one do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, thinking of yourself more highly than another, he says, in fact, don't do that at all. He says, you should consider others more important than yourselves. Look out not only for your own interest, but to the interest of others. And then to drive home the point, he gives us the example of who in that context? Sunday school answer. Rhymes with schmiza, starts with a J. Jesus, right? Philippians chapter 2, he says, Have this mind amongst yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be held onto, to be grasped, to say, Well, I need this, I can't give this up. But no, he says he set that aside. He emptied himself, taking on flesh. He was found in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. There was no selfish ambition in what Christ was doing. And that's the example that we need to follow. We need to be like him. Isaiah describes him in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet, even still, he opened not his mouth in protest. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Y'all, that... That needs to be our mindset. Why did he do that? Because he was loving us in doing that. The crowds, they mocked Jesus on the cross, saying, save yourself. You who saved others, save yourself. They said, where are the legions of angels? Call down legions of angels. Could Jesus have done both of those things? Yes, absolutely, 100% he could have. And yet he didn't. Why? Because he was thinking about you. And if he had done that, then you and I aren't saved. Then you and I are staring at a a future in hell. And so we need to follow the example of Christ, John 13, 34, Jesus even commands us to do this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you, what, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then listen to this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you what? Have the right doctrine. Have the right theology. Show up at church consistently. Carry the ESV. Have your Awana memorized. Sing the right songs. Don't sing the wrong songs. Don't cuss. Don't swear. Don't do drugs. Don't all that stuff. Don't have sex before me. I mean, he could have gone anywhere with that, Right? and said by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Love one another. Love one another. Does that surprise you? That Jesus said the defining mark of your identity as a follower of Christ is how you treat one another. Your love for one another, which is exactly the opposite of what James was seeing in the people that he was writing to who were fighting and quarreling and bickering. Why? Because their passions were at war within them. And so you need to realize your greatest enemy is you. You need to be suspect of your desires. When one of those passions comes to the surface and you feel tempted or you feel a desire to come up and you say, you know what, I want that. You need to ask yourself these questions. Is that a need or is that a want? We throw around that word, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need this, I need that, I need that. Do you really need that? Or is that something that's more, no, I I want that. And guys, I, I preached this to myself before I stood up here, because I am I struggle with this too, man. Tim Cook and Apple, they've got me just by the throat, right? That new event comes out, and I'm like, I need, no, I don't need that, I, I want that, Right? suspect your desires another question to ask is this going to be good for anyone else besides me that thing that i want that thing that i that that desire that i have is it going to benefit anyone else or is it just going to benefit me another question to ask is this something that god would want me to have is this a desire that god would want me to realize the way that i want to realize it Following up on that question is this one. Can I glorify God through pursuing this? Paul makes it very clear that we are to do everything that we do, Colossians 2, Colossians 3, 17, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that you desire to go after that, to pursue that, can you do that as a witness, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Can you glorify God through pursuing that? And then finally, can you be satisfied still if you don't have this thing? Can you be satisfied still if you don't have this thing? And let me just say this, if you answer that question no, then what you've identified in your life is an idol. And 100% God does not want you to have it. There should be not one thing in your life that you cannot hold open in your hands and say, if God, if you want me to not have this, take it from me. And that includes your relationships. That includes even your family. There should be nothing that you hold so tightly to that you say, God, you can have all of me except this. And guys, when we have a desire pop in our lives and we think, you know what, unless I have this, I can't be happy, I can't be satisfied, I can't be fulfilled. What we're saying is, God, you're not enough for me. I need that as well. And that's identifying something that's an idol, that's got a place in our lives that only God should have in our lives. So realize your greatest enemy is you and that's what's causing this conflict and these fightings. It's worldly behavior. And John says this in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. It's a familiar passage maybe for you. It says this, 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world. Is he talking about people there? no how do you know he's not talking about people? Because he goes on to define the world. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'm going to circle back to that statement, but just let that marinate and soak in your mind for a second. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does he mean by world? For all that is in the world, verse 16, the desire of the flesh, some of these things that we've just been talking about your sinful desires within you, your passions that are at war against your soul, the, the things of the world, the desires that are of the flesh and the desire, desires of the, the eyes, not just the things that your body wants because your body says, man, that's gonna feel good, but then also the things that your eyes see and they say, wow, that's beautiful, that's lovely, that's valuable, I want that thing. That's of the world. And then he says also this, the, the pride of life. I want power, I want prestige, I want status, I want fame. That's what John is saying, don't love those things. And he says, look, if you love those things, the love of the Father is not in you. If you love the world, you can't love God. Those two are diametrically opposed to one another. And that's why James says this in verse four. Look at verse four. After he's been identifying, look, you you do all these things you you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. And then he says this in verse four, and it's a strong statement. You adulterous people. Wow. Joel Osteen is never gonna stand up and preach to his church that they are adulterous people. It's It's not gonna happen. Why? Because it's insulting, isn't it? To be told that we're adulterers? How dare you, James, right? Think Hosea here. You're gonna talk about Hosea in your small groups after this. But you adulterous people. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world, now think world here, being what we just talked about from 1 John, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Friendship with the world, buddying up to that system, the world system, is, James says, enmity. Now that's a word we don't use very often, do we? It's Hostility. It's open rebellion. It's opposition, is what he's saying, to God. If you're a friend of the world, James says, you are an enemy of God. Therefore, he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Is James clear here what he's driving at? Is, is he soft-pedaling this? Is he beating around the bush at all? No, he's meeting this head-on, isn't he? Look, you want to be a friend of the world? You want to continue to be ruled by your passions and your lust and your desires? You want to continue to think about only what's good for you? You want to continue to give in to these things that are waging war against your soul? It's like, that. fine, but understand that you're not fooling God in this. That your friendship with the world is putting you directly opposed to and at odds with God. Think about your past for just a second. Paul describes this for us in Ephesians chapter two, and it's not pretty. Ephesians two one through three. Paul says, "You were dead in the trespasses and sins in once you which in which you once walked, following the course of this world." friendship with the world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh there's our phrase again the passions of our flesh those things that wage war against our soul we lived in those in the past carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind y'all this is who you were before Christ and some of you still want to live there even as you you sit here and you say, no, but I am in Christ. And James is saying, if you're still living like you're not in Christ and professing that you are in Christ, there's a disconnect here. And don't be surprised at that, right? That's been what he's been saying the entire letter. Be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Faith that works is faith that what? Works, right? Right? That if you sit here and you say, hey, I I, I have faith, James says, great, show me, right? Because saving faith will transform us and change us. And I'm not saying that you're never going to feel the battle, the the pull of the world, the temptation, the lure of the world. But y'all, as believers in Christ, you need to be on guard. Again, like Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston. Making sure that your flesh does not get back up off the mat. Point number two tonight is this. Battle the pull. That pull. Battle the pull of the world that's trying to drag you back into the lust of your, your, your flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Battle that. Wage war back against the passions that you have in your body that are waging war against your soul. Fight back. Fight back. Guys, that's why let's let's toss out the, the language of I'm struggling with this sin. Don't struggle with sin. Fight sin. Battle sin. Mortify sin. Put it to death, right? Have you guys ever tried to mix water and oil together? What happens? Do they mix? No. You can pour them into the same container. You can take a big spoon, reach into that container and whip it around as fast as you want to whip it around and yet the oil is still going to separate from the water, isn't it? Or light and darkness. Have you ever tried to blend light and darkness? They're like, well, I want some light but I kind of want it to be dark light. I'm not talking about a dimmer switch. I'm talking about you, like, you light a match and you're like, okay, don't, don't dispel too much of the darkness here, match, because I want there to be still... No, the, the light is going to immediately what? Dispel the darkness. The two can't mix. Well, y'all, as believers, our relationship with the world needs to be like that, like oil and water. We should feel that discord. We should feel that disconnect with the world system. We should feel that this is not who I am. This is not what I want to do. This is not what I want to be. Again, James is addressing these conflicts, this division within the, the, the believers that he's writing to. He's saying, look, what's causing this is your infatuation with yourself and your infatuation with yourself is fueled by the world. And so he's saying, do not be engaged with, enamored by the world. Because if you are, then you're at odds with God. Prior to Christ, you know, you, as we just read in Ephesians chapter two, you are a slave to yourself to your desires, your agenda, your satisfaction. You lived for whatever made you happy. Guys, as Christians, if your goal is to do whatever makes you happy, then you've got the wrong goal. God is not concerned about your happiness this side of eternity. Because that is far too small of a reward in God's eyes. He's concerned about your happiness for all of what? Eternity. And so don't chase after the things here in this world that promise to make you happy here because none of it will last. And we've talked about this. I've talked about this so many times from here. You get into the cycle of chasing one thrill after another thrill after another thrill after another thrill. All of these things, all of these highs that promise to satisfy you and it's never enough and it leaves you wanting more and more and more and more and more and you'll never ultimately be satisfied. Why? Because God's created you to be satisfied with something that's far greater than anything this world has to offer you. You lived your life prior to Christ at the altar of immediate gratification. But when you come to faith in Christ, that changes. It's not about what's gonna make me as happy as I can possibly be right now. It's about what can make me as Christ-like as I can possibly be right now. Again, 1 John two fifteen, such a stark statement. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How were James readers loving the world? Well, what we looked at pre- previously, they were, remember chapter two, showing discrimination against one another. They were judging, they were showing favoritism, they were saying to, hey, you come sit here in the good place, and to the person that didn't have any money, the poor person that walked in, hey, you sit down over here and, and, and don't, don't be seen, don't be heard. They're Showing discrimination. They were also using their words, chapter three, to, to harm one another, to attack each other, to tear each other down. Also in chapter three, they were living with selfish ambition and envy. And so James is saying, I'm seeing a lot of the world in your life, and and I'm just warning you here, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. It's enmity towards God. But I want to ask us tonight, how do we love the world? How do you love the world? Maybe it's your, your social media interaction. The posts that you put up the things that you like. Guys, let me just tell you, you need to be careful here. Let me just put it this way. There are very few reasons to put a selfie up on Instagram. Very few. Guys, girls alike. A lot of time, why do we do that? because we're thinking to ourselves, well, let me get the, the likes. Why? Because that's gonna fuel what? A, a desire in our heart to be approved by others. What we put out there, again, guys, it's, and it, 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 even when it's not something like that, even if it's, if it's a tweet, right? Like, I'll, I'll let you into my life sometimes. I'll send out a tweet, and I have to check myself and go, am I sending this out so that somebody's gonna read this and think, wow, that's really profound, and Pastor PJ had a profound thought there. That's just like the, the person that's putting up the, the selfie of themselves. It's the same sinful heart that's behind that. And so as we interact with and engage with social media, we need to be careful how we do that because that's, that's an open door that's a, a garage door type open door for the world to, to invade our, our lives. And so we need to be careful there. Second, think about your, your circle of friends. Has a, a friendship with the world Invaded your social circle, your friends that you have? Are they people that encourage your walk with Christ? Are they people that love Jesus to begin with? You say, well, should we only have Christian friends? Let me put it this way your closest friends, if you are a Christian, your closest friends, without question, should be Christians. If you are a believer and your best friend is an unbeliever, that's a problem. Because any intimacy that you have with that person is divided by that infinite chasm of the fact that they are not a follower of Christ. And so your closest friends should be believers. The world can invade their, in a heartbeat, again. Yeah, but they're such a nice person. Yeah, but they're so kind. Yeah, but they're so good. Third, your entertainment choices if social media is a garage door, guys, uh, entertainment choices is an airplane hangar in your life. I mean, the stuff that's out there right now th- that can invade your thought life, invade your your mind. And you might think, well, it's not, it's no big deal. I can handle it. And that's just not true. Guys, if, if a show that you are watching is TVMA, stop it's not worth it. I don't care if everybody else is watching it. It is not worth it. Let me get specific for you. Game of Thrones is nothing but trash. It's absolute garbage. It's soft porn under the disguise of a show. There's no reason that as as a believer in Jesus Christ, you should ever watch that show. The stuff that's coming out on, on Apple TV Plus that just released. There's a new show I think called C that's gonna be on there. Guys, it's, it's gonna be the same thing. And again, to that person that says, yeah, but it doesn't really in, impact me. It doesn't bother me. Okay, maybe this thought will bother you. You're being entertained by the very things that Christ was killed on the cross for. The things that Christ was crucified and bared literally excruciating pain for and you watch them and you are amused by them. And you also live your life before an omniscient God who knows all and sees all. So none of this stuff is done in secret or in the dark. Your thought life. Your entertainment choices inform your thought life. That's another area where the world can creep in and friendship with the world can take hold that you're gonna have to battle the pull of the world is in what the the thoughts are that you entertain. Again, Philippians 4.8, I go there often, but Philippians 4.8 is that grid. Whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's honorable, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, whatever's excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Guys, take your thought life and pass it through that grid and if it doesn't get through the grid, then change what you are thinking about. Another area is possessions and money. The world can creep in there. Again, I need this. I have to have this. I'm not gonna be happy if I don't have this. When you're in a committed relationship, maybe you say to yourself, you know what, I would never cheat on my boyfriend or girlfriend. But yet at the same time, you kind of like flirting with other people. And in the back of your mind, you're going, you know what, but I'm never gonna cheat on that person but you engage in these relationships in these flirt, flirtatious banter and you, you even feel excited and intrigued by this flirting. And all the while, you may think in the back of your mind, you know what, it's not cheating. But I'm gonna say, you know what, it's, it's also not being faithful either. God wants your full devotion to him. And he doesn't want you to even flirt with friendship with the world. At best, if we give ourselves over to friendship with the world, you're putting yourself in a position to invite God's discipline in your life. At worst, you're putting yourself in a position of being self-deceived into thinking that you are a follower of Christ when you're not. A glimpse at what God is gonna to do to his enemies, Psalm sixty-eight twenty-one. Psalm sixty-eight twenty-one. God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. God is going to strike the head of his enemies. Hebrews 10 31. Hebrews 10 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friendship with the world is hostility, it's enmity toward God. Paul builds on this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 18. He says, what accord has Christ with Belial, or with Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Then I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. God wants you for himself. Entirely, solely for himself. And that's why he, James continues in verse five. Do you suppose, he says, that it's for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God looks at you as somebody who is a follower of Christ, somebody who he has ca- caused the, the Holy Spirit to dwell within, and he says about you, I want you, all of you, For me. God says he's he's jealous over us that way. Y'all, I am jealous for my wife's affection. I want her to be consumed with her, her love for me as far as earthly relationships go. I don't want there to be any other relationship that comes between my wife and I. In fact, we even tell our kids, as much as we love our kids, we always tell our kids, hey, is there anyone else who mommy and daddy loves more than you? And they know to say yes to that question. And we'll say who? And they'll say you guys love each other more than you love us. And that's true, we do love each other more than we love our kids. Guys, God loves you to that level that he wants no other relationship to come between you and him. He wants your full devotion for him. He wants to use you for his purposes alone. And before you protest and say, well, that's that's not fair. That doesn't sound like something that I want. Let me remind you of this passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what's the next word? Good. 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 good yes, good. Not misery. Not oppression. Not depression. Not disappointment. Not morose, somber, like, oh, I'm a Christian, so here we go, let me just deny myself. This is not what it's about. When you give yourself over to God in faith and repentance, and God says, you're mine, and then he begins to create all things and cause all things to work together in your life, he's causing them all to work together for your what? Good. According to who? You? No, thank God, not according to you or me our definition of good is, is cow poop compared to God's definition of good. Seriously. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter three, when he lists all the things that he would boast in. And he says, look at all this stuff that the world would say, wow, that's what? Good. Paul says, no, it's not. It's poop. That's what he says when he says it's, it's garbage. I'm totally off notes right now. But he says it's, it's dung, our English translations clean it up for our sensitivity, but it's the Greek word for poop, okay? When you say, man, but but, the, but look how good the world is. You, you need to understand that, that looking at what the world offers you and all of its shiny objects and naked bodies and all this garbage over here, that, that we look at and we go, well, I, I want that. What God has to offer you makes that look like excrement, like filth. And Paul is saying... James is saying, rather, God wants you entirely, wholly, completely, as a devoted follower of Him. And what He has in store for you is really, truly, ultimately good. Jesus said to His followers before going to the cross, you remember this? When they were concerned because He was talking about leaving. And Jesus said this. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. I love the compassion of Jesus there. He sees that his disciples, these 12, are concerned because they're like, what's going on? Where's Jesus going? And he says, look, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't worry. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Or then there's Revelation 21. When you see the new heavens and the new earth coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband and it says that God will dwell with his people. And he says that God is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. There's no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more cancer, no more breakups, no more betrayals, no more lies, no more deceit, no more cover-ups, no more, none of that. And it culminates in the fact that there's no more death. Why? Because there's no more sin. And that's what God has in store for you and he wants to you. He yearns jealously over you. And guys, just like none of you would be okay with your boyfriend or girlfriend going around and flirting openly with other people, or worse, going around and sleeping around with with people. I almost said other people, but hopefully they're not sleeping around with you either. So guys, why would we think that God would be okay with our adultery with the world? That's why James says, you adulterous people because he's trying to communicate how serious it is. When we flirt with and give ourselves over to the world, but look at verse six, You, you, you may think to yourself, man, I'm with you, I track with you, I'm following you, Pastor PJ, but this is so hard because the world is such a difficult place for us to live in and there's so many things that are tempting in this world. And James gets that and understands that and so does God and that's why we find verse six. But what? He gives more grace to those who are humble. Therefore it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is there to enable us, to strengthen us, to give us the desire to obey Him and to resist temptation in this world. Our final point tonight is this strengthen yourself in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Again, the standard may seem impossible. if you're relying on your own strength, if you're thinking, you know what, I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm never gonna do this sin again, I'm never gonna have these thoughts again, I'm never gonna give it, and you're just leaning into your own strength, then the standard is, is overwhelming and crushing. And guys, that's exactly what the law was given to do. God gave the law not to provide a way for us to have a relationship with him. God gave the law to crush us and to show us that we can't and so he gave the law to point us to Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians, that the law was a tutor. What does a tutor do? A tutor helps us to understand something, instructs us, points us to the right answer. And what's the right answer for us in our need for a relationship with God? It's Jesus Christ. And so if you are trusting in yourself, strengthening yourself in yourself, then it's always gonna seem impossible. But God gives grace. To who? To who? humble. Those that are willing to say, I can't do this on my own. Those that are willing to say, I am a sinner. I struggle with the temptation to be a friend of the world. I need help. Y'all take advantage to to strengthen yourself in the Lord. That's cute and that's pithy and everything, but what does that mean? Take advantage of some of the things that God has given you in your life. Number one, take advantage of the word of God. You want to experience victory, and you want to experience protection against the the, the the onslaught of the world. Immerse yourself in God's word. Be a student of the Word of God. Chew the cud. Have we talked about chewing the cud in here? Yeah. Cow has multiple stomachs, right? So it'll eat some grass. In the morning, you open up your the, the word. You're you're eating the grass. You're pulling it out of the roots, right? And you're you're starting to chew it. You're chewing it, you're, you're, you're extracting some of the flavor out of that, and then you're gonna swallow it down because then you gotta go to work, you gotta go to school. But then just like a cow, later on that cow, as that, that grass is in the stomach, the cud, right? This is awesome, this is so good. You didn't know you were gonna hear about poop and cud tonight, but here you go. The, the cud comes back up into the cow's mouth, doesn't it? And he chews the cud a little bit more. And that's later on when you're on a lunch break or when you're on a, a 10 minute break at work and you've got an opportunity to think about that word, the scripture that you read that morning. Then you swallow it back down, go back into class or go back to work and then later on you bring it back up. Guys, that, that needs to be our relationship with the word throughout the day. Marinating in the cut of God's word. It's, I, I want to write a book someday with that title. I'm <laughs> sure it would sell tons. The other thing to take advantage of is, is prayer, right? Be praying to the Lord. Praying with other believers. Getting other people to pray for you. Take advantage of the church. Be here. Be around other Christians. Be encouraged by other believers. Take advantage of, of relationships with one another. Hey, will you, I'm, I'm battling in this particular area. Will you help me? Will you pray with, with me in this? Will you hold me accountable in this? Will you be an encouragement to me in this? And I, and I want to do that for you. And then another thing is, think about how much God loves you. How much he loves you. Think about the, the sacrifice of Christ. What that cost him. Guys, I, I don't like waking up in the morning and getting out of bed when it's cold, right? It, it, like, it, it's, it's like one of those battles that takes place within me that I'm like, how long can I stay in bed before I just am going to have to blitzkrieg through the rest of my morning to try to make it to work in time, right? Because it's, it's cold. Think about this thought for a second. Before Jesus took on flesh as an infant, he had never experienced the feeling of cold once. Once. In all of eternity past, he was never uncomfortable once. He'd never been tired once. He'd never stubbed his toe once. He'd never gotten sick once. He'd never eaten a bite of food and gone, oh my goodness, this is the worst taste I've ever experienced in my mouth. Once. Ever. Okay, He think about that. He set that existence aside to come after you. And then think about the fact that he was betrayed, that he was arrested, that he was beaten, that he was flogged, that he had the crown of thorns thrust down on his head, that he was nailed to a cross, that he died on the cross for you. That's how much God loves you. And that should fuel your strength, your devotion to him, right? His patience towards you should fuel your devotion to him. That before Christ, he he didn't smite you from the face of the earth for your sins, but he was patient and, and, and waited to lead you to the point of coming to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. His continued patience towards you. In the fact that he's caused his spirit to dwell within you, James 4 5. God loves you. These thoughts should strengthen us in our resolve. Again, James is writing, going, You have conflict. The reason you have conflict is because you are looking out for number one and number one only. You are consumed with yourself and your selfish desires, they are waging war against your soul and it is breaking up the church. And he's looking at them saying, Stop it. And he's holding out the, the, the reason and, and the how and the why because friendship with the world is, is enmity with God and God wants all of you for himself. The gospel should transform everything about us. It should transform our relationship with one another and it should transform our relationship to our self as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the great reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is our savior, that he is our Lord, that he, God, came and did what we couldn't do, what the law can't do. He lived that perfectly obedient life and died on the cross for our sins. He exchanged his merited, his earned righteousness. He gave that to us and took our sin on himself. God, thank you for that sacrifice, that reality that truth. God, help us to live differently as a result of that. Help us to live not for ourselves. Help us to to take these passions that are waging war against our soul and to, to, to mortify them, to put them to death, God, so that we might be found faithful to you, to daily take up our cross, to die to ourselves to follow you. God, help us to avoid the, the pull, the temptation of this world to see through the lies of the enemy, to identify them for what they are and, and to choose instead to remain faithfully obedient to you daily. And God, may we not rely on our own capabilities or strength to do that, but continually take advantage of the things that you have given us. If we will be humble enough to say, God, we need you. We need you. Like the song says, every hour, but more than that, God, every minute, every second. We need, God, you. Sustain us, strengthen us in this battle, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.